It's legal to hit. It's in the Bible. That's Bible. Or you come back all beat up from summer camp and some jerk asks you, how was your vacation? That's always nice, isn't it? My, but we live in perilous times, do we not? There's so many things today that can ruin our attitude. We have Pride Month this month that we're celebrating, where the basis of our society is attempting to force upon us their lifestyle. It's a different time than when we grew up. You have to now, these days, explain not only the birds and the bees, but the bees and the bees, and the birds and the birds, and the birds that used to be bees, and the bees that used to be birds, and the birds that look like bees, and we could go on. You can be what you want to be, but if you instruct people to be what God made them to be, then uh, you get, we get in trouble for it. Add to all that, God and the Bible are under attack. I read a headline just yesterday. The King James Version of the Bible has been removed in several Davis school districts, uh, Davis school district schools in Utah, where it was determined that it contained vulgarity and violence, while drag queens are reading to our children in libraries. It's all enough to give us a bad attitude. There's a annual conference in Florida called the Bad Attitude Baptist Blowout. I don't know if you've seen that. And I'm a Baptist with a big B, but I don't want to be a bad attitude Baptist. I don't think any of us ought to be a bad attitude Baptist. I'm asking you today, how's your attitude? Now, we've just come through a pandemic, and we've had to deal with things we've never had to deal with before. It was all new to us. I mean, Dr. Lance Ketchum was preaching through the 1918 influenza pandemic, but it was new for the rest of us, amen? I'm just joking, sir. I love you. And though we came through it, I don't know about you, but things still don't seem the same as they were before. Some precedents were set that still affect our churches today and probably will for many years to come. I still have people today that watch church and see themselves as every bit as spiritual as people who go to church. I tell you today, it is easy to become discouraged. We have had a lot taken from us. Our nation has been transformed into one of hate and division. And I ask again, how's your attitude? I know what you're thinking. It was fine until you started talking, amen, until <laughs> I had to drive through your traffic. It was just fine. Uh, Victor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor, and he said, everything can be taken from us but one thing, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. Having the right attitude, having the right spirit in uncertain times is so vitally important. Your attitude, your spirit will determine how you live your life day by day. And I believe it'll determine your impact on others. Both the hummingbird and the vulture fly over our nation's deserts. All that vultures see is what they're looking for. Dead, rotting meat. They thrive on that diet. Both, uh, but the hummingbirds ignore the rotting putrid flesh that lies there, and they look for the colorful blossoms of desert plants. The vultures live on what was. They live on what is past, on what is dead and gone. But hummingbirds live on what is. They seek the new. They fill themselves with freshness and life. Each bird finds what it's looking for. And here's the point I want to make today. We all do. Your expectations have much to do with your outcome. Much of your daily life 
uh, your daily life's prosperity or failure is found in your attitude. How's your spirit today? John Maxwell said, people may hear your words, but they feel your attitude. There are different things today that can crush your spirit. And they can crush it to the point to where our attitude stinks, even in ministry. Or with God's help, we can renew our spirit. I want to look at Psalm 51, a few verses today, starting, if we can, at verse number 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Father, I pray you'd help us today in these few moments we have together. Challenge us from your word. And may we leave today, not only this morning, but with the rest of the messages to follow, may we leave better than we came. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This, as we know, is the psalm of David's repentance. David has committed the sin of adultery, which led to the sin of deceit and murder. For over a year, David has lived with the weight and the guilt of his sin, and this has had a devastating effect on his spirit, as sin always does. There is nothing like the crushing weight of sin in your life to choke out any ministry effectiveness. This is where David once and for all gets right with God. It's where David pulls the scab off of his heart and he recognizes his own filthiness. He allows God to cleanse him and purify him for the first time since his sin. Psalm 51 gives us a clear representation of a second chance. Thank God he's a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. Before we beat up David for his uh, mistakes and sin, let's realize that every single one of us has needed a second chance from time to time. And in the middle of his repentance and his rejoicing, there's a renewal that I want to deal with this morning. Uh, look at David's prayer to God in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast not me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Rejoy, re restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. David recognized when he uh, lived for God, there was a spirit of holiness in his life. And this had been taken away when he covered his sin. That spirit was gone. He said in verse 12, restore unto me the joy, not of my salvation, but of thy salvation. It's interesting then what he claims that God can do through him once he restores his spirit. And this is the thrust of my message today. David said, God, if you do this for me, if you create in me a clean heart, if you renew a right spirit within me, if you restore to me the joy of my salvation, the result will be, we find in verse 13, then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. I want to preach this morning for a few minutes on the power of a right spirit. The power of a right spirit. We live in uncertain times. Free speech has pretty much went out the window. Many people question if their vote counts anymore. Hatred and violence is scorned while law and order is repudiated. Uh, I'm sorry, hatred and violence is sanctioned, <laughs> as we see all over, while uh, law and order is repudiated. Family values are not only mocked, but they sometimes are labeled domestic terrorism. 
Yet the early church lived in uncertain times. This is not new. Sometimes I think we act as preachers like this is all new. This is the first time this has ever happened. No, no. God has worked in dark times before. And we have a choice today. We can either spend our time belly aching about the darkness or we can turn on the light. Amen. In the context of verse 10, David understands that without a cleansing, he will not have a right spirit. You can't have a right spirit in your life if there are in your life things that displease God. And when there's a wrong spirit, you'll not have the impact that you will otherwise. Every one of us, every one of us has the potential of having within us the wrong spirit. Luke chapter 9, Jesus is planning to go through Samaria. He's headed to Jerusalem. In verse 52, the Bible says, then he sent messengers uh, before his face, and they went and entered into the village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And verse 53, and they did not receive him because his face was set as though he would go through Jerusalem. It's significant that Jesus chose to travel through Samaria. Uh, we know the situation. It was the shortest route, but Jews went around it. They didn't, they hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated them. But this party that was traveling with Jesus was probably a bit sizable, and so he sent messengers ahead to arrange accommodations. And by the way, Jesus never showed anything but love and compassion toward the Samaritans all throughout his ministry. He healed a Samaritan's leprosy, and then he also noted his thankfulness. He accepted water from a Samaritan woman and gave her the water of life. He spent several days in this woman's village ministering to her neighbors, and he made the Samaritan a hero of one of his best-known parables. And later, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he would send uh, his disciples to preach the gospel in Samaria. He'd always been full of kindness and goodwill to the Samaritans, and now they were treating him with contempt. The problem was not that there was, once again, no room in the inn. The problem was that they were just being deliberately inhospitable. In, they were deliberately not wanting him around. Amen? Okay. <laughs> James and John were instantly filled with righteous outrage. How dare they? And so they said to Jesus, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? James knew his Old Testament. Elijah had done that very thing in this very region in 2 Kings chapter 1, and he was not condemned for it. Uh, but can I tell you that at that time and under those circumstances, it was an appropriate response for Elijah. It was not an appropriate response for James and John at this time. And, it, and by the way, a tone of arrogance is seen here. I think it's kind of funny. Wilt thou that we call down fire from heaven? I think Jesus, he didn't, but he could have said, really, boys, you think you can call down fire from heaven? The truth was that they, in effect, were asking Jesus to enable them to do what they knew he would not do himself. What was Jesus' response? Verse 55 of Luke 9 rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you're of. You can be saved and have a bad spirit. You can be serving God in the ministry and have a bad spirit. You can have a bad spirit in your life and not even really be aware that you have it. You know not what spirit you're of. A bad spirit hinders the working of God in your life, and friend, it affects everything. Your relationship with God, your relationship with your mate and with your children, your impact on others. And here's the problem with a wrong spirit. Typically, we can identify and often do the outward sin in people's life, but a, uh, the problem with a bad spirit is you can do everything right and still inside be consumed with a bad spirit. And yet it doesn't take it too long before it shows up. 
I'm not sure we understand the power of having a right spirit between us and God. Uh, people that spend time around you will pick up on your spirit. I don't know who said this, but I like the statement, countenance is the press conference that your face calls to give, you the, to give the state of union of your soul. If you're discouraged, it oozes out of you and discourages others. If you're filled with anger, it cannot help but affect those around you. If you're filled with bitterness, it will defile those around you, as it tells us in Hebrews 12, 15, defiling many. What kind of spirit do people pick up around you? We put a lot of focus on doing the right things, and good, we ought to. But I believe that the desperate need for so many of us is reaching out for the right spirit with God and others. The key to David, can I just point this out? The key to David getting right with God was not changing his outward habits. The key to David getting right was getting the right spirit. And when he got a good dose of God on the inside, it showed up on the outside, as it always does. The power of the right spirit will help make you effective in leading people closer to Christ in a few different ways. Number one, a right spirit helps to make an impact. David said, you give me the right spirit and I can do two things. He said, I'll teach transgressors thy ways and sinners will be converted. I'm saying this morning, if my spirit is right, somewhere along the journey of my life and my ministry, uh, someone's going to pick up what I have and want it. When you're right with God and your spirit is right with God, friend, you'll make a difference. You'll make an impact. People do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. And then it also has the power to refresh people burdened with the problems of life. If you have the right spirit, you have the ability to refresh the down and out, the discouraged, and it doesn't take that much. A phone call, a note. I recently wrote a, somebody helped me. Uh, I got stuck in the snow in a Jeep Wrangler. That was embarrassing. Because you drive a Jeep Wrangler, I don't know, you do a lot of bragging. I don't know if other people do, but I did. And I got stuck in the snow and a fellow came and helped me out generously. And I sent him a card and a little money for the gas. And I just told him, you know, not many people go out of their way to help. And I sent him a gospel track. And he, he wrote me back and said, nobody's ever done that for him before. I was in his mid-30s. Nobody had ever given him a thank you card before. These things have an impact if we have the right spirit. There's such brokenness in our world. It's one filled with uncertainty. And with all the current issues, a kind word can sometimes be the difference between holding on and giving up. Our praise for others ought to be twice as loud as our criticism for them. As pastors, we better go the extra mile or reaching out to our folks, giving words of kindness. A kind word is like ointment to the wound of a broken spirit. Be that ointment. Can I ask you, what led a woman to the feet of Jesus, so overcome with emotion that she bathes his feet with tears. I submit to you today, it was not because he expounded Old Testament teaching so well, although that's important. But she saw a man of God whose lip did not curl in disgust when he looked at her. She saw someone in whose eyes had acceptance and love. And by the way, she was ready to run from her sin when she saw it. Because she saw in him what she was seeking from the world, that the world can never give you. 
And she saw that in Christ. Would that our churches were placed that sinners could find healing. The average person is blindly seeking love and acceptance. And friend, it's a crying shame if the neighborhood tavern does a better job than the local church. And I'm sorry, but sometimes they do. Would to God we lived so that we gave sinners a place to run to. You see, I think often we as pastors put too much focus on our education, our qualifications, our great knowledge and all those things, our experience. I recently called just out of curiosity, not because I wanted to go, but because I wanted an illustration. I called the Vikings and asked about ticket prices. And ticket prices to a Vikings game is somewhere between $125 to $200. Why would anybody? Well, anyway, uh, if, I, if I went to a game, a Vikings game, I tell you one thing, I would not pay $150 a ticket to watch a Vikings huddle. Now, huddles are important, yes. It's important for, uh, for, for them to have huddles. But I'm, what I'm there for at the game is the result of the huddle, not the huddle itself. People pay $200 a ticket to see what difference the huddle makes in the game. Do, does the play they decided on in secret work in public? And right now, we're in our huddle. We're strategizing the game. But for too many people, this is the whole game. This is all that there is, being around other people just like me, being around other Christians, and that's the whole game. The extent of the Christian life is not just being around other Christians. No, no, that's the huddle. And a lost and needy world is out there so desperately needing the impact of the huddle, not the huddle itself. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13, you're the salt of the earth. And salt does no good as long as it's inside its shaker. So the challenge for our church is not only what we do on Sunday. What matters is what happens when we break the huddle and get out into the game. Amen. How about we show them Christ who can truly satisfy their longing? Psalm 1611, thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures of forevermore. The acceptance that people chase when they go after sin is found in Christ. We need to love on people. We need to love even the unlovely. Now, we're all preachers, and since there's nobody in here but us, we can be honest. Some people are unlovely. They're hard to love. I read a story about 67-year-old carpenter, uh, Russell Herman. And uh, in 1994, he died and left behind an amazing will. It included in his will was $2 billion with a B dollars for the city of St. Louis. He left $1.5 billion for the state of Illinois. He left $2.5 billion for the national forest system. Herman also left $6 billion dollars to the government to help pay the national debt. Amazingly generous was his will. The only problem was that when he died, his only asset was a beat-up old 1983 Oldsmobile. <laughs> his promises were completely meaningless because there was nothing behind it to back it up. And here's the deal. When we're to love people, it comes from a reservoir we don't really have. And thank God, He allows us to tap into His love. 
1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No one hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us. He's basically saying, look, you, we say we can't see God. You know how people can see God? Love one another. By this shall all men know you're my disciples if you have a short haircut and wear long skirts. No, no. If you love one another, amen? We've got to get back to that. I want to just point out a couple of things out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Because we understand, and I know this is hard because we like to study, we like to read, but people will not initially respond to a theological dissertation. That's not what they initially respond to. Hopefully that'll come as we teach them. But they respond to love, to care. 1 Corinthians 13.1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, and have, no, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And that verse tells us there that love is greater than eloquent speech. Have you ever tried to speak a foreign language? English is my second language, and I've pretty much lost my first. I learned how to speak English at about 10 years old, and since I haven't spoke my first language, which was Amish, uh, I've pretty much lost it. I can understand it, but it's hard for me to speak it. And language is a, it's a hard thing to maintain a different language. And this word men, uh, anthropos, it, I looked up the meaning of it, the original word, and it, one of the meanings was generically to include all human individuals. In other words, the idea is if you could speak every language, if you could elo eloquently communicate your message, the greatest linguistic master in the world is ineffective if he speaks without love. The recipients of this letter could take note, by the way, because uh, eloquence was greatly admired in ancient Greece. Athens had its great philosophers, and, uh, and, and he was trying to make the point here, uh, Paul, was that without love, eloquence means nothing. Reading on, we see that love is greater than spiritual gifts. And though I have the gift of prophecies and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. Here, Paul mentions the three spiritual gifts that were really talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Prophecy, uh, the ability to declare God's truth in a powerful way. Knowledge involves a deep understanding of the Word of God. Faith, the ability to trust God for great things, even to the point of removing mountains. These three gifts are all from the Holy Spirit, and yet, without love, he said, it's worth nothing. Look at the wording. All mysteries, all knowledge. In other words, if you knew everything about everything, that alone isn't enough. You also need love. Let's do some supposing. Suppose I were a genius. Doesn't take much supposing, but suppose I was a genius. Super smart. Suppose I was the most gifted speaker in the entire world. When I spoke, just like Obama's meetings, people would faint, but this time for real. Uh, suppose I were brilliant in math, science, history, every area of human knowledge. Suppose I had so much faith that miracles resulted from my prayers. And according to our text, God says, Sorry, bub, that's not enough. Without love, the rest of it doesn't matter. When we start operating in our Christian life without love, preaching is just so much noise. Praying just becomes empty speech. Giving is just ceremony. And I'm talking to pastors today, and I am one, but you know and I know, if we're honest, ministry can get very clinical. And it can even get very cold. And it can get routine. And I'm asking you today, how's your spirit? Love 
uh, according to verse 3, is greater than any personal sacrifice. Verse 3 said, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. <laughs> the rubber meets the road here. Paul just went from preaching to meddling here. He hits our service. Giving is a good thing to do. Dying for Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, but as good as these things are, without love it does nothing for us. Let's do some supposing again. Suppose you were rich enough to be generous, enough to give millions to worthy causes. Suppose you could wipe out homelessness in America. Suppose you could end poverty in Haiti and India. God says it's not enough. He asks here, would you be willing to die for Christ? Are you willing to be persecuted for the gospel? Are you willing to be ridiculed and slandered for your faith? It's still not enough. Giving to the poor, offering yourself to be burned at the stake. Both are very noble actions, but they are useless. And by the way, I think I would add, and dangerous, if it's done without love. He tells us that love is greater than eloquent speech. Love is greater than spiritual gifts. Love is greater than personal sacrifice. Without love, I say nothing. I am nothing. I gain nothing. How's your love today? Too often we underestimate the power of a smile, a kind word, a listening ear. How hard is it to listen when you got the answers? Amen? That's a, and let's just be honest. That's hard to do. Somebody's rattling and platting. I got all the answers if they just stop yapping and let me at, you know, give them my wisdom. But sometimes what people need is just a listening ear. Or the smallest act of caring, time. Time is such a valuable resource to us in ministry, and yet times we got to spend it on people. All these have a potential to turn a life around. David said, you give me the right spirit, and then I'll make an impact. Then I will help those bogged down in the dregs of sin. Then I will bring people to the place of salvation. Then I can make people thirsty for the living water that I possess. There is power in having the right spirit. If you've got the right spirit, you will build people up, not tear them down. I, I hate, again, don't want to burst bubbles in here, but God does not use you because of your abilities. He gave them to you. They don't mean anything to Him. God does not favor you because of your talents. I believe all my heart He blesses the right spirit. Hey, preacher, child of God, get your eyes off of yourself. Get your eyes off of the problems of the ministry. Put your eyes on others. This is a very deep statement, but think about it. With one tiny exception, the world is made up of others. With one tiny exception. After Abraham Lincoln was president for a while, people were besieging him as they do, looking for offices and special favors, trying to get appointments. It wasn't long after he was elected president, he got sick. And he was confined to a bed with typhoid fever. And Lincoln told his secretary, bring on the office seekers. I now have something I can give to everybody. <laughs> can you identify with that? How about giving others the right spirit? David did not say, my cup is filled to the brim. He said, my cup runneth over. When it runs over, you can run on someone else. Share the right spirit. How's your spirit today? Father, I pray you'd help us. Oh, each and every one of us can get so caught up in the, in the dre daily dregs of ministry, in the routine, in the mundane, 
Sometimes we forget what an awesome, awesome position you've given us. What an opportunity to represent you and to teach your people through your local church. I pray you'd help us not to take that for granted. Help us, Father, to love people, to reach out, to make an impact. Help us to have the right spirit for you. We'll give you the glory for what you do the rest of this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.